Good morning. Love matters to God. That's the thing that counts most with respect to God's priority for us. He said the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. Um, and a lack of love is creating problems for the Christians in the church at Corinth, but that's not their impression. That's not what they would say. As they see it, their problems are rooted in differing opinions with respect to food offered to idols. And there's some people that believe this, there's some people believe that, spiritual gifts, and the Lord's Supper. They think the problems stem from this, but as Paul sees that their problems are rooted in lapses in love. A verse we looked at some time ago, Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. When a spiritual gift is exercised apart from love, it kind of becomes like this. I kept on doing that, you'd find that majorly irritating. And that's, in Paul's opinion, spiritual gifts functioning without... (laughs) Spiritual gifts that are exercised in a context bereft of love is something like that. When Paul describes biblical love, and what it's like, he uses 15 verbs in a, in a passage we know well. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. When you look at biblical love, biblical love cannot just reside in the heart. Biblical love is something that is demonstrated, is evidenced by how we act towards others. It's essential to manifest love, to demonstrate it. Love is is not conveyed by words. It has to be shown. So there's different words describing love in the Greek and agape love, which is kind of the love that God has for us and we are to exemplify towards others, a way to look at that love is agape love is demonstrated love. Demonstrated love. It's not just a love of emotion. It's not just a love of feeling. It's a love that you can take a picture of and because it it really manifests itself in serving. And what Paul is attempting to do is to take spiritual gifts, moving it away from being something like that, by moving it within a context of love, because spiritual gift exercised without love 
is like that, according to Paul. And so he's trying to put it in back into a context of love. And as he does so, he talks about worship and what happens in the house churches of that day. And he shines the light on those worship services and a couple of different things having to do with speech. And what he does is tries to, through directing speech, um, create a place where love works. Um, what it says in 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 33. Paul's been dealing with this for about three chapters in the heart of the letter, and now he kind of brings this part to a close with respect to love and spiritual gifts and meeting together. So that's what he says. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Paul shines the light on two spiritual gifts, which happen to be speaking gifts. Prophecy and tongues. To prophesy means to proclaim a divine revelation, or simply to speak on behalf of God. Prophecy isn't necessarily talking about the future. It might be that, but it is bringing a message from God to people. That's what prophecy is. Tongues is a private prayer language used in communion with God. In the book of Acts, there is the gift of tongues, and it seems to be a little bit different. Then there was communication, and everybody heard that communication in their own tongue. What Paul describes here is not the same thing. It seems to be something more like a private prayer language that is used and benefits the individual using it, and then it creates a sense of intimacy with God. So tongues is vertical communication. Not really understandable horizontally until there's something to interpret. And prophecy is horizontal communication. And Paul puts limits within churches that would have met in houses, in living rooms, with some into atriums. It's not they didn't have big gatherings, and you would gather with other individuals in your neighborhood or in your locale. And we don't know how many there were, but when you figure how many can they fit in a house, 5, 10, 20, 25, 30 in a big house, that's what church was in those days. And what Paul does is he limits in these house churches, uh, he limits the use of tongues. And what he says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, let somebody interpret but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. And what he says, Paul says, two or three, and that's it. Two or three, not 20 or 30, two or three, one at a time. 
And if it's tongues in terms of a private prayer language, um, only if an interpreter is present who can make sense of what is said. Otherwise, it sounds like something that you can't understand. And if no one's there to interpret, you really can't benefit from it. As we talked last week, the one doing it gets the benefit. They feel close, and sometimes it's easy to imagine that others would feel as good as they do. But that's what Paul indicates doesn't happen. Others feel left out. I don't understand what he's saying. And what Paul wants is, in the church, it's not just about what benefits you. It's what benefits others, because that's what love is biblically. This is supposed to generate this. Love communicated and received on the vertical plane, is to be extended on the horizontal plane. That's how it works. Um, Their restrictions suggest that many were eager to kind of let a rip in the assembly. And so, in fact, not just one, but many. And picture yourself in a living room. And maybe there's 10 or 15, and it's opened up for, okay, and then some just start off in a language that you don't understand, and it's not just one doing it, it's many doing it. And and as they do it, they have the sense of being enraptured. You're not enraptured. You don't understand what's going on. That's what Paul is trying to bring a sense of order to, a sense of decorum. And he's trying to create a context in which everyone benefits, because that's what happens with love. People benefit. This rule would minimize the bedlam and prevent tongues from dominating the worship. Um, It appears, since he says one at a time, they were all chiming in at the same time. And again, it would have created bedlam. Paul puts a limit on tongues, but he also puts a limit on prophecy. That's what he says. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged, and the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. So another part of a worship service, they talked about a hymn. Singing was part of it. We don't know if they were Jewish songs or Christian songs, but there were songs. And they would do a hymn, and there was a teaching that someone would bring, and a revelation, and and sometimes a prophecy, and sometimes tongues. And Paul is, is putting a little on It was kind of a spontaneous service. Uh, Paul says, uh, limits the number of prophets speaking, and what's probably happening in this gathering is either too many prophets speaking, or if somebody gets up there, he becomes really windy and just goes on for a long time. And But at any rate, what's happening is it just is not benefiting everyone. Those who reckon themselves to be wise and spiritually gifted, they dominated the assembly. And they competed with one another for airtime. You know, so one guy would get up and another one would, oh, you know, we'd kind of maybe get in front of him. And everyone wanted to put their face before the people. Um creating a lot of confusion. Um, And there was a sense to which those speaking claimed infallibility, to which Paul says, no, that's not the way it works, because when somebody gives a prophecy, the others are supposed to evaluate it. What do you think? This is what this person said. What do you think? 
and they would evaluate it to make sure it fits in with what they understood about God, with what else they knew to be true of him. And that's the way it was to work. Again, you can see it's this worship rules that create order, that made sure that love was being experienced not just by those doing the speaking, but by those doing the listening. Um, after, again, the prophet speaks, the others are to carefully evaluate what is said. And Paul, when he puts this in perspective, and said the reason for this is that God is a God of confusion. God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Apparently, you could kind of contain or adjust spiritual gifts. It's not something that just came out of you. I remember the first time our, Gavin, our son, threw up. And he was, and I'm not equating tongues or prophecy with throwing up, but you, you'll, understand, you'll understand my point. I remember he never had, as far as I knew, he, he, he had never done this before. And his eyes became as big as saucers. And then it just went, and then it just, boom, it just, it just came out. Yes, Mike, what is your point, Mike? Um, God is not a God of confusion, but a God, you know, I really do forget my point. I had a, I had a point, but now I got, I got so wrapped up. What's that? Okay, yeah, yeah, maybe that's it. Uh, shit. Thanks, thanks for trying to bail me out. Okay, so now with, a picture of my son throwing up and no idea what it had with the message. Uh, let me let me continue to go on. I did have a point. Okay, let me make me, me, me. No, I won't do that. Okay. Okay. Um, God is not a confusion, but a God of peace. Um, Christian worship is to reflect the character of God, the Spirit. Oh, I got my point. I re- I do remember my point. Good. Good. Thank you very much. Um, okay. <laughs> there was a sense that, you know, like with my son, that spiritual gifts, they just kind of come up like, like my son throwing up, and you just can't control them. It's just like, and, and what Paul is indicating, that's not the way it works. Whether it be prophecy or tongues, he tells them to restrain it because they can be restrained. It's not something that's irresistible, something that just comes welling up from within. Okay, yeah, that's what I wanted to say. Good, thank you very much. Christian worship is to reflect the character of God. The Holy Spirit doesn't create a ping-pong thing bouncing between that person and this person, creating chaos. God is a God not of confusion but of peace, and the Spirit would not create that type of dynamic, something that feels disordered, inappropriate, like bedlam. He doesn't do that type of things. Many things are ascribed to the Spirit of God, and at some point it's been pretty laughable. In fact, holy laughter was one of them. It was ascribed to God where people just break out in laughter, and that was seen as being indicative of the Spirit. Some people barking like dogs and all kinds of things. There were shakers and a lot of these things, people caught up in these frenzied activities. And Paul kind of puts an adjustment on that. He says, mm, no, that's not really the way it works. What the Spirit does is says things to and through people. 
And these things that are said should be done in an orderly manner so that everyone can benefit. That's what the Spirit does. The um, disorder in Corinth, in Corinth is not from the Holy Spirit. I think Paul would say it's more about narcissistic exhibitionism. Disdain for others with lesser gifts and disregard for the common good. Um, he monitors what happens in worship, and then he also has some words to say that are very controversial. Look what it says, and we pick it up in verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the woman should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So I think what that's saying is, woman, you can't speak when you're here. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you so much. <laughs> um, and this is a psychologist came to Christ and um, started attending a Bible study taught by an energetic and forceful leader who believed the Bible. It wasn't long until he directed the attention of the group to 1 Timothy 2, another passage. He insisted vehemently that women should neither teach men nor be in a position of authority over them. But just vehemently, this woman had just come to Christ, come into this Bible study, and the psychologist protested that she was the director of a research team. She said it must be God's providence that allowed her to hold this position. And he indicated such employment, being in supervision over a man, was outside the will of God. And that to remain in her present job, was a direct violation of a biblical command. Now, this woman's kind of confused. She came into a relationship with Christ. Within that relationship with Christ, felt like she got hit by a two-by-four. Each morning, she left the parking lot to her place of work and a great weight descending upon her. Oh, God, why did you leave me to yourself and then do this to me? What should she do? Should she turn her back upon all the training, the hard work, and the implementation of her discoveries? Was that what God wanted for her life? Yeah, it's a difficult question. What does Paul mean by this? What is he saying? Um, the restriction raises questions. Does Paul impose absolute silence on all women at all times? That's what this guy indicated. Is this directive only for a particular circumstance? When you look at things like this, you've got to look at context. And so what it, we find is in the beginning of chapter 11, what Paul indicates is that people pray and prophesy, women as well. That's a speaking thing. And he said, when you do so, have a head covering, which... No, that's not as relevant in our time, but what it indicates, Paul has just said three chapters before, that it's okay to prophesy and pray, just have your head covered. So it, it doesn't seem that he would be imposing absolute silence if three 
chapters before he created a context in which women could speak, just as long as they have their head covered. Um, and there's some other things, not just the context of this letter, but the context of Scripture. The book of Joel says that the Spirit will be poured out upon both men and women, and they will prophesy. Why would that be? Prophecy occurs within teaching settings. How could it say something in the Old Testament and turn around and it puts a prohibition on it in the New? God doesn't do stuff like that. He doesn't speak. Well, so what does it mean? Well, but there's other questions. How about the women who populate Paul's letters? But the women, and there's a number of Euodia and Syntyche, talks about in Philippians, they were co-workers with him. Were they co-workers, but they went into a house church setting and they couldn't talk? In what way could they be co-workers if they couldn't talk? Sign language? I, I, I don't, you know, so what we're doing, I'm not poking fun at this. It's just what we have to look at this command in the context of not only the letter, but Scripture, because it's got to all make sense together. Spirit doesn't say this and say that. Um, but there's other indicators. Phoebe, Phoebe in Romans 16.2 was a deacon. Now, a diaconos, what it says, is a servant. But I don't think it's a servant. I think it was a deacon. She held office. And therefore, wasn't just in the church, but was a position, was in a position of responsibility in the church. Could she exercise that position of responsibility and not speak? You see, it, it creates some questions, doesn't it? Um, Priscilla and Aquila, it's the way it worked in that context. If a husband and a wife, the husband was always first. Aquila was the guy. And so, it, Paul should have spoken about Aquila and Priscilla when he writes about this couple, but he doesn't do so because Priscilla was the one. She was the one that had the more active ministry, it seems. And when Apollos was in need of some tutelage, it was Priscilla that came alongside and helped him to understand what the role of the Holy Spirit is on this side of the cross. Um, there's others. There's Mary, Junia, Tryphena, Tryphosa. There's a number. How can these women function as co-workers in the churches if they can't speak? One of the ways to reconcile the apparent contradictions is to understand that the noun that is translated women is the same word that could be translated Wives. In fact, the other times it's used in this passage paired up with the word for men or husbands, it means husbands and wives. And, and what it suggests that these, this text centers on how wives are to relate to their husbands in the church's Worship services. You say, what's that about? Let's, let's think about it. Paul isn't lying down then, if this is true, rules for women in general, but for wives in particular. The immediate context refers to sifting out what has been said. There's a prophet, there's another prophet, they say some things, and now what happens? Let's evaluate it. And the context of this statement 
where it says wives or women are to keep silent is in the evaluation of what the prophets are saying. It's possible that wives are asking questions or challenging what has been said. A man then, maybe with the gift of prophecy, doesn't always act perfectly at home. So he comes up with this thing about, well, I think God's saying this. Well, he sure didn't say that last night when you were wolfing down the meatloaf. You know what I mean? And you can see how this, how this might work. Uh, anyways, he, he, what he says, that type of dynamic that exists when there is a demonstration of something, the, the wife and the husband dynamic is something that Paul could be fine tuning. The scenario best explains why Paul asked them to ask their questions of their own man, their own husband at home. If you have an issue, and it's not just about everything, it's about that particular thing. Why did you say that? Why did you say that when I heard you say this? That type of questioning, that type of asking, don't do that in public. Ask him at home. I think that might be what Paul is suggesting here. Paul imagines a wife joining in the process of weighing what is being said during the congregational scrutiny of prophecy. They either raise questions or contradict their husbands or other senior male relatives. In that culture, again, in that culture, it was shameful for the wife to presume to instruct her husband especially in public. It was shameful, and people would look at that and say, what in the world? And then when they left the church meeting, they would have talked about it. They say, you know what happened? This guy did, and you know what happened at this thing? This woman just tore, she she questioned him. She didn't, she did. She did. Where did that happen? It happened in this Christian church. And so what Paul's sensitive to is not just put the kibosh, because Directive passages indicate that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Discrimination based on class, gender, or race is not part of the thing. But the Bible is not about equal opportunity. It's about the message. And as these issues are sifted out, the first thing that Paul puts the crosshairs on is race. Race. You don't have to be Jewish to be close to God. So Jews and Gentiles, that's what he deals with first. That has to be dealt with first. But he doesn't seem, he doesn't have the same type of a sense of intensity when he describes slaves. Which he says, if you're in a, don't try to get free. And to women, he doesn't, Move, that's not to say he didn't believe it, but you can't change everything at once. You say, what do you mean? Prosperity and well-being were seen as dependent in the Roman Empire on religious forces. Disorder in the home was a threat not just to family, but to society. Again, this is the way they believed. The reason why the charge of atheism to Christians who didn't believe in the Roman gods. The reason that that was troubling, it wasn't just a sense of, you can believe that, but the gods then become angry 
when individuals don't fall in line. And so what the Romans would say, if they got defeated by someone, they would point the finger somewhere. In fact, we think that's what Nero did. Nero in the 60s, when Rome had experienced some downturns, what Nero did, he put the finger on the church and said, it's their fault. And then he used Christians as torches for his assembly. And the way he was able to justify that, atheism. These atheists are the reason why the gods are messing with us and why we're getting defeated as we are. Is that, yeah, that's right. And that's what would happen. Uh, so in the Roman Empire, this was really serious business. Household codes, it wasn't just about decorum. There was a lot of weight on these things. Religions introduced into the empire by foreigners were judged in large part on whether they complied with the expectations for household relationships. Judaism, very patriarchal. And so the Romans didn't have a big deal with them. There was an Egyptian cult of Isis, though. Egyptian cult of Isis, which, which gave to women a more sense of don't really break free. And whether that was right or wrong, that's not the point. What ends up happening, the Romans looked at that, said that was rebellion, and they put the kibosh on the cult of Isis in the Roman Empire. They drove it out of the empire. Why? Because the Romans relied upon household governance and rules to establish order in a very large empire. They could either do it culturally or they would have to do it militarily. And what they did was a combination of both. But they took household codes very seriously. If the household codes of the New Testament had important value, Paul is concerned that Christian behavior should not give Christ a bad name among um, unbelievers. This was the reason why Paul deals with roles for men and women in his letters, especially Ephesians and Corinthians. Throwing off social structures threatened to put Christians in the crosshairs of government pressure for the wrong reason. Um, that's why Paul deals with some of these things at this time. This command, then, I don't think it imposes silence on women in every circumstance, requiring them to learn only at home. In the end of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul talks about um, all are to learn in the assembly. What he seems to be saying, wives are to hold their speech within the context of prophetic evaluation at the point of public assembly in order to not do something shameful. And again, it was shameful in this culture for a wife to publicly question or challenge a husband. Um, if any believe that Paul was making much ado about nothing in these directives, that they were just kind of, his words, he says, he says his words are not just suggestions. Look what it says. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, 
he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy, prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. The person who disregards these things will be disregarded and will be cast aside. Uh, everything is to be done in a orderly manner. What does this mean? What does it mean in our day? Um, I really do. And again, it's not something that any church would, I don't think, would do to say to a woman that you can't talk while you're in church. And what we've done is when there's a verse like this, you have to look at it in its societal context. There was some stigma relative to the role of women at this time, maybe less so today. But Paul, even with that stigma in place, is not saying that women should be silent in the church again with the weight of that on you, on women. That would constitute something that would be confusing, I think. I don't see how you could get around it. Even if you could push a text like this off to the side, knowing at some place in that Bible it says that I shouldn't talk, that's not what it's saying. I think in the context, it's talking again, just to make sure we're crystal clear. It's okay to pray or prophesy, and again, coverings, you know, we don't distribute doilies. That part of culture was set aside. But with respect to speaking, in the church, this prohibition is for this culture at this time in the infancy of the church so that the gospel could be established and it wouldn't be cast away because wives were challenging husbands. What Paul understood is when the gospel takes root in a person's heart, what ends up happening? Freedom ends up happening, and love ends up happening. What Paul is ultimately invested in, the message has got to get into people's hearts. And therefore, if a cultural thing needs to be honored in order for the word to get into someone's heart, we're going to honor the cultural thing, because again, the the objective is not equal rights. For everyone, the objective is the gospel in the heart because that will promote equal rights eventually. Not right away. Everything in its time. First, the gospel needs to be established. And I think that's what's happening in this text. So if you are, uh, when we close and you can sing, if you are a woman and, and you can greet somebody on the way out and you can instruct, or I think the Bible is, is and Jesus' ministry and Paul's as well, is that men and women have an active role in all areas of ministry, I believe. Anyway, uh, come on up. We're going to have a closing song. Father, I want to thank you for your message and your messengers, both men and women, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. Thank you for your purposes that ultimately they are 
not discriminatory based on race, class, or gender. We live in a time of imperfection where things are not exactly as you would have them to be. What is your priority, though? As Travis indicated earlier, is that we would see you and understand you, what it is you were doing at the cross, what reconciliation means. You would have us make room for that in our minds so that it would change the way we relate to you and the way we would relate to others and change the way we would relate to ourselves. There would be a gentleness that would replace a harshness. This doesn't happen all of a sudden. It's not like a burst from above. Your purposes are done, but not instantaneously, but progressively. Uh, thank you for the fact that you do things well and in your time. Would you continue to allow us to be transformed into being the people you would have us to be? In Jesus' name, amen.